Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. Today on The Detail, we go behind the story of a boy who was abused by his father and how many in their small town turned against the child and his mother. This is also about a community that sided with the man who was able to keep working as a volunteer firefighter after he was charged and later convicted. RNZ's head of long-form journalism, Veronica Schmidt, explains how she delved into it thinking it was a one-in-a-million story. And a warning, this episode of The Detail deals with issues around sexual violence and abuse, including of children. I've done some other reporting in similar areas, and the mother of the victim, who we're calling Rachel, got in touch with me. And the man, who we're calling Richard, had been convicted and sentenced at that point. However, he went on to appeal, and so I wasn't able to do a lot to begin with, but what I did do was hear um, her side of the story, um, and then once uh, the court, I followed the case through all of the courts right to the Supreme Court, and once that there was a judgment there, I was able to start digging around. Tell me what the story is in terms of what's come out in court so the man was, Richard, was charged with seven counts, mostly of indecent assault on a child and one of assault. He was found guilty on the core charge of, it was a representative charge, which means that, you know, a similar crime had happened many times or multiple times. Um, he was found guilty of indecent assault on a child and the other charges he was found not guilty of. He appealed to the Court of Appeal and then the Supreme Court. And one of his arguments was, or his lawyer's arguments at least, was that, you know, it was weird that he was found guilty on one charge but not the others. But the courts just didn't agree with that. They said that's really common for a jury to decide that, yep, there's enough evidence to convict on this, but we're not quite sure what if we've got enough on the others. And what happened to the man? He was sentenced to home detention. 10 months. Was it clear to you from what Rachel told you right from the beginning that the story had to be told? Yeah, it was. Although, you know, what happens in court dictates a lot of this because he did appeal. And, you know, if those appeals had been thrown out, then there wouldn't really have been a story because at some point you have to go, okay, all the evidence has been tested by a jury, by court of appeal judges to the Supreme Court. And if they'd found him not guilty, then you know, that that ends it um, in many ways, uh, but that wasn't the case. So once we had that Supreme Court judgment, yes. And it wasn't just about the court case. It was that there were so many other things involved in this. The town had turned against this child and his mother and that fire and emergency had just had very dubious response to him being charged and even convicted and fire and emergency has had all sorts of problems in the past with similar things so allegations of sexual assault and the victims or the complainants saying look they just haven't dealt with this and they haven't taken it seriously or they've closed ranks against us so it was a really familiar story a lot like other ones we've seen about fire and emergency. But, you know, Sharon, the thing that's really got me is I thought when I first heard this story and before I started doing a lot of reading about child abuse and about um, child abuse 
trials. And so I thought this is a really rare, bizarre story, like a whole town or lots of people in the town turning on a child and their mother and rallying around the abuser. This is just out of this world. It's almost unbelievable. And I went and, and, and double sourced every single fact thinking this is just almost unbelievable, you know. And then I find out from reading and from speaking to experts, this happens all the time. And I've got an inbox full of messages from people saying, this is what happened to me. My own family didn't believe me and sided with a, a pedophile who had abused me. I just can't tell you how many messages I have like that. And I've talked to lots of experts who've tried to put it in perspective. And I'm, I still find it pretty hard to understand. Um, but yes, it's very common. So what exactly, when you say a whole community turned against Rachel and her child, in what way? What happened? Well, the fire brigade that Richard was a volunteer on knew that he had been charged and the chief of that fire brigade decided he could stay on. Now, I understand they stood him down from public facing duties. Um, so, you know, that's something. However, normally you'd be stood down until there was a verdict. And that didn't happen. And then even after he was convicted, he remained on. And and the district um, area manager only told the fire chief to get rid of this guy after he was sentenced. And people from that fire brigade turned up in court and we've been told that they were wearing their fire and emergency T-shirts. So a whole lot of them turned up in court to support him. So kind of made these public shows of support for him. Um, and then other people in the town too. And it's a small town. Other people in the town backed him. There's awful um, messages about the mother being a liar on social media and, you know, sent her messages saying you're ruining your child's life by doing this. You thought that th- this was an extraordinary situation and then you later found that actually, no, it's not that extraordinary. What is that about? I've thought about this so much and I was thinking about it, Sharon. Imagine if I told you right now one of your really close friends is a child abuser. Like, would you believe me? I've, I've had to reckon with this myself and I'm thinking about people I know and love dearly. Would I instantly believe that? And so that's confronting, isn't it? Mm. Um, but one of the things, you know, that I keep reading is it incredibly rare for children to make up abuse allegations. It's just incredibly rare. Um, and the thing I think that got me is, okay, you might have that shock when someone tells you, someone you think you know really well, who's a great guy, is a child abuser. I wonder at what point you start to have doubts, even if initially you can't believe it. Because as, so this has been, this is a stat for you, only about 10 out of every 100 sexual abuse crimes are reported. So 10 out, so only 10% are reported to police. Mm and only three of them get to court, and only one of them is likely to get a conviction. So it is so incredibly rare to get, to A, make a complaint, B, get through all the scrutiny of a police investigation, and then to get a guilty verdict. And now this this guy was found guilty in a district court that was upheld in the Court of Appeal, and the Supreme Court said there is absolutely no chance that there's been a miscarriage of justice. Now, it's at that point that I wonder how you... You know, at, do you start wondering, okay, maybe this guy is guilty? That That's what has kind of got me, that all the evidence has been presented. It's been through this massive um, level of scrutiny. And I believe there are still people who support that man and believe he did not do it. 
So is it about, and we'll look at how the treatment of, of children in cases like this when it comes to court, but is it about, you know, society and the justice system still backing men before women and children? Yeah, look, possibly that's it. I mean, this is, it's victim blaming in a way, isn't it? Or it's, it's, it can't possibly have happened. It's that denial that this goes on, even though unfortunately sexual abuse is really common. Um, I've certainly had a lot of mail from women saying that they've been in similar situations, not believed, um, children not believed about abuse. What happened when you approached fire and emergency and police? Because initially it seemed that Rachel got all the right support. Mm. Um, I was really disappointed that police and fire and emergency wouldn't give me an interview because I think it would have been good for the public to have heard from them on this. Uh, Police have said that they've dealt with it appropriately. It's a shame that they never responded to Rachel who had written to them or her lawyer had written to them and said she had real concerns about um, whether the police, the detective who was initially assigned to the case, she later had a detective she thought was great on the case, she was worried because police and and fire and emergency work together really closely, especially in small towns. And she was worried that does he know the offender? Does he, does he know all his mates at the fire brigade? And that's something that's been raised quite a lot. And in fact, the IPCA released a a report last year about small town policing and conflicts of interest because the IPCA had um, received so many complaints from people who believed that um, police officers had conflict of interest in small towns because they knew everyone. And you mentioned that Fire and Emergency has undergone a review. An independent investigation has revealed bullying and harassment are endemic in all fire and emergency workplaces. 37 cases reported since last July. So in 2018, there was an independent review of fire and emergency um, looking really at its culture. The investigator here, the retired judge Coral Shaw, has found complaints are often downplayed or in some cases completely overlooked. Judge Coral Shaw found that there was harassment going on, bullying, that it was pretty common and that people who complained about it had really negative experiences of going through the complaints process. They didn't feel that they were listened to or that the complaints were resolved. There was this feeling that firefighters were seen as heroes or they were pillars of their community. Rhys Jones is the Chief Executive of Fire and Emergency. They talk about the hero culture being that a degree of bullying is accepted or tolerated or even expected from the, from the quote, the heroes. You've also worked in senior levels of the Defence Force. Do you see that sort of behaviour as, you know, part of the culture that's woven into these kinds of organisations? It is, unfortunately, and it's we are one of the, the insights that perhaps I can bring to this. We're in a tough physical and mental environment, you know, getting dealing with emergencies, fires in particular, uh, and therefore we need to create that tough training environment, tough physically and mentally. Unfortunately, too many times, uh, people step over that line into inappropriate behaviour. They start self-regulating who's good enough to be in this particular team, and that's wrong. And to allege something against them saw a whole lot of people refuse to believe it and kind of close ranks around them and defend the people. And in fact, people who had made complaints felt they'd kind of been pushed out. And since that happened in 2018, there's been a behaviour and conduct 
office installed at Fire and Emergency? We are changing. It will take some time to be, um, you know, to be ideal. Uh, and we recognise that it's a long journey. We've got a three-year, we're putting into place a three-year. Here's, here's what we're doing for the next three years, but we know it's going to take longer than that uh, to be the perfect organisation. But we're starting, we're determined to start. However, they were the ones that dealt with this complaint from Rachel about the way uh, the fire brigade had handled this case. And look, she, she didn't get any sort of resolution until I got involved. She'd asked for an apology for her son. She wanted them to acknowledge they'd kept on this guy after he'd been charged with abusing a child and even after he'd been convicted and that fire personnel had gone and sat in court in their uniforms, what she thought was intimidating. And they'd said to her, we'll keep you up to date about what we're going to do. We're going to do some education and a debrief with this brigade. We 100% commit to coming back to you. Then she never heard from them again. So there's obviously some problems still going on there. So when you went to Fire and Emergency with those complaints from her, what did they say? Well, I asked for an interview and and, and they wouldn't give me one, which, as I said, is really disappointing. Um, they did give me a really long statement and it was full of apologies and they absolutely recognised that this was handled appallingly and that everything that was done was incorrect. And they actually said, you know, we met with um, the victim's mother and we gave a full apology. Well, I had a recording of that meeting. Um, the victim's mother had recorded it and she told them she was recording it. And I listened to the whole thing. There was never an apology. I don't know what that tells you, uh, but out of touch with what had even gone on there. Can we look at how a child is treated in this kind of case and what happens when it goes to court? I mean, what is the process for that child to give evidence? Well, do you know what I found really um, interesting is that, and hadn't considered before, is that in adult rape or sexual assault cases, often the arguments are, are around consent. Um, you know, did he or she consent to this? And, 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 you know, you get heaps of arguments around it. Well, children can't consent to sexual activity. It's illegal. And so what you often see is that the defence is it didn't happen. And that means that kids are accused of lying, right? So the chief victims advisor to the government last year um, commissioned a report and it was called um, That's a Lie. And it was an analysis of court cases involving children who made sexual violence complaints. And they analysed court transcripts. And it's fascinating and heartbreaking. But in 13 out of the 15 court transcripts, the defence lawyer either said you're lying to a child, made statements saying you're lying or questions to that effect that you're lying. So 13 out of 15 of the cases, that's a pretty high level of children being accused of lying. And in two of those 13 cases, it, the case was, or there were statements about that your mother or grandmother put you up to this. They made you lie. So again, you know, the story seems unbelievable and, and one in a million to me, I thought. And yet, Two out of those 15, the mother or the grandmother were accused of coaching the kid to make up abuse. And in 13 out of 15, the kids were accused of just making it up and lying. Because in this case, the child had a support dog with him as he was giving evidence. Was he actually in court or is it something that's videoed in a room? He was, he, it was live, but he was, he gave 
evidence via video and he did have a little support dog. You can't, often parents can't be there with them because they're usually a witness in the case or often a witness in the case too um, because sexual abuse happens with people we know. Um, And so these kids often have to not be with anybody um, that they know. So yeah, he had a little dog he hung on to while he gave evidence and he gave evidence for hours and hours and he was really traumatised by it. And the thing that got him was being accused of lying. And and so in that room where the child is giving video evidence, the dog is with the child. Is there anyone else in the room with the child? That's a really good question. I don't think he would have been left alone, but it wasn't somebody that he knew. Yeah, he had someone that wasn't somebody that he knew. Okay, and then in the courtroom where the the live video is being beamed into, he is being questioned by the defence lawyer as well as the prosecution. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's it's pretty brutal, isn't it? I mean, well, yeah, well, that that's what this that's a lie report found. So. I mean, yes, most of the young people were accused of lying, but there was there's things in that report that, I mean, one child was asked if she liked it when her grandfather put his finger in her vagina. Um, and there's a million other questions in there that it's pretty unbelievable. And, you know, there's been some changes recently, and that's a, a sexual violence legislation act. Uh, the Honourable Andrew Little. Trials are set up to ensure defendants receive a fair trial. That's the right thing to do. We still live by the principle innocent until proven guilty. The state is put to proof. That is fundamental. That must always be the case. But we can and must make some changes to ensure the trial process does not unduly re-traumatise sexual violence complainants. That is what this bill does. The changes will help complainants to feel supported and safe in court. It was passed in December and it actually puts an onus on judges to intervene when there's inappropriate questions and also some other things in there to change the situation for not just children but other people in sexual violence cases. So the judges have to tell address a jury if sexual violence myths are introduced. So they have to kind of dispel those myths. So there's kind of there's some things underway that um, people in you know, sexual violence support sector are positive about, um, but they think there's um, a lot of problems still, especially with children in court. What do they want to happen? What kind of changes? Well, one of the things that I I um, have reported on just after after the story is that the chief victims advisor certainly and others and like from NGOs that support people um, who have been sexually assaulted, they want kids to have more support as they go through court. They want someone to, that they the kids know to sit in court with them as support, um, and they want the kids to be prepared for court. They want them to know what's going to happen and that they might be accused of lying and that this is what cross-examination is. And there's some research about when kids are better prepared for what's to come, that um, they don't take it as personally being accused of lying and that kind of thing. There was this report I read that one line stood out to me and that that's this kid turned up to court And she'd heard the word court and she thought that she was going to be going to some sort of like basketball or tennis court and that it would make her feel better after what had happened to her. Of course, it was nothing. She thought she was going to play a game on a court. And so, you know, there's a case for better preparation 
for kids, for them to go through um, a mock cross-examination, not about the details of their case, but, you know, stick a blue pen in front of them and say, but that's red, isn't it? And that kind of thing. So they know what's sort of coming. Mm. And also just to have a contact person that they're in touch with the whole way through the process who can, who understands children and what they can understand and speaks to them as such. Um, so there's kind of a push for that. But um, whether or not that will happen, your guess is as good as mine, Sharon. How does New Zealand compare with other countries in, in terms of the way it handles children in cases like this? Certainly um, in Australia, Victoria has a child support service that, that helps kids from when they complain all the way through court. And the Chief Victims Advisor says, you know, they've got a population similar to New Zealand, so it shows that we could do it um, if there was the will. Other countries have allowed children to give evidence and to be cross-examined in advance via video long before the trial. So... What that does is it means the kids don't have to wait for a really long time after they've been assaulted or, you know, have complained of being assaulted to give evidence because one of the things that's been found is that that waiting and waiting sometimes for years, like some of these kids have been waiting to go to court for 20%, 25% of their lives. They've had it hanging over them. So what it means is they can give evidence fairly soon after they've disclosed and they don't have it hanging over their heads for years. And the Sexual Violence Act means that more of that will be done here. What happens now? Is there any more to this case? She is still going through things in the family court. So Richard wants to have access um, to their son. There's legal things there and um, they haven't resolved their relationship properly yet. There's many other things too. She wants a protection order to um, remain and various other things. So no, she's not, she's not through the court system. Yes, the criminal court, but certainly not the rest of it. So what kind of response have you had from this story? My inbox is just full of messages, really lovely, also sad messages of people who have found themselves in similar situations. And like just this outpouring of support for Rachel and Sam. And we had, didn't have a um, give a little link or anything like that in the story. And I just got slammed with messages. Where's the give a little link? How do I donate? How, over and over and over and over until I was like, okay, I better get give a little link in there and put it on social media. So I tweeted that link and put it in the story much later. Um, the story was released in the morning and I put it in, in the afternoon. And people have donated 45 thousand dollars since that story was published um to help Rachel with her legal costs um because she owes about seventy thousand dollars um and so she she wrote me something this morning actually just saying that she just wants to thank everybody individually and that she's so overwhelmed reading all the responses and that she wishes that she could reply to them individually and that that the money, which was something that was really unexpected to her, that there would be all of these, these donations, has just lifted this huge weight off her shoulders. So I know that she's um, super overwhelmed and also just, like, has said that the messages that people have posted on social media and sent to me that I've forwarded on, um, it's like the opposite to the message she's had in the last few years, which is she's been repeatedly told she's a liar, um, and that she's making it up and that she's damaging her son and 
all of these things and to hear the opposite and to hear people telling her that they believe her and that they've been through similar and they know just what it's like she's she's I think I just keep repeating the word overwhelmed she's overwhelmed if this podcast raises concerns you can go to the digital story on newsroom or RNZ to find out how to get support That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is public interest journalism funded through NZ On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can download us free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Sarah Robson. And thanks to Veronica Schmidt. Kakite anō. 